0: It's the most familiar Bible story, the birth of Jesus in Bethlehem. But there's so much more to the nativity story than illustrations on a Christmas card. What really happened on that silent night? A night that actually wasn't silent at all, because the skies were filled with a heavenly host singing joy to the world. Shalom! I'm Christine Darg. The little town of Bethlehem is only about five miles south of here in the suburbs of Jerusalem, and pilgrims from all over the world come to Bethlehem to visit the ancient church of the Nativity and to walk in the very fields where shepherds still keep flocks of sheep. In Bethlehem, you can explore the grottoes and hillside caves, And some of these caves have been consecrated as chapels for prayer and to help visitors envision the nativity scene. I believe one of the real reasons for the season is an opportunity for Christians to explain the many Bible prophecies that were uniquely fulfilled in the birth of Jesus. For example, the book of Daniel, chapter 9, starting with verse 24, even outlines an exact timeline for when the Messiah would come into the world and be killed in order to redeem us from sin. So we must declare that only Jesus uniquely fulfills the Messianic prophecies in the Hebrew Scriptures. As Galatians 4.4 so beautifully states, in the fullness of time God sent his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, so that he could adopt us as his very own children, causing us to cry, Abba, Father. The birth narrative of Jesus, Yeshua is his Hebrew name, is recorded in the Gospel accounts of Matthew and Luke, and together they confirm that the Hebrew Scripture prophecies of the Messiah culminated in this one unique birth, In world history. And there are things going on in the gospel narratives that are easy to overlook, but we want to focus this time on some fascinating details in the story. For example, how Mary wrapped the baby Jesus in swaddling cloths and what this sign meant. In Luke chapter 2, the angel Gabriel visited Mary and said, Mary, fear not, for you have found favor with God, And behold, you shall conceive in your womb, and bring forth a son, and shall call his name Jesus. He shall be great, and shall be called the Son of the Highest. And the Lord God shall give him the throne of his father David. By the way, that throne will be received at the Lord's second coming. And speaking of the Lord's future kingdom, Gabriel added that Mary's son shall reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there shall be no end." Now in order to fulfill these prophecies at both his first and second comings, Jesus must be uniquely qualified. And that's why the Gospels of Matthew and Luke go into great detail to trace the family genealogy. The Jewish authorities never disputed that Jesus was indeed the son of David. According to Genesis 49.10, the Messiah had to be descended from the tribe of Judah. And Jesus is the Lion of the tribe of Judah. That symbol is found today on the flag of Jerusalem flying behind me. A rampant Lion of the tribe of Judah is the centerpiece of the Jerusalem flag. Also, essentially, according to Isaiah 7.14, the Messiah must be born of a virgin. Well, Saint Luke, who happened to be a physician, interviewed Mary and she felt led to include her testimony in his gospel that she was a virgin when the Holy Spirit overshadowed her. God became incarnate in her womb. Now furthermore, according to the prophecy in Micah 5.2, the Messiah must be born in Bethlehem, the city of David. That verse says, But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come the ruler in Israel, whose goings forth have been from old, even from eternity. So that prophecy eliminates all other cities and towns in the world as Messiah's birthplace. There are many other prophecies that Jesus fulfilled at his birth, including Isaiah chapter 11 which foretold that nations will seek the counsel of the descendant of Jesse, the father of David, and the ancestor of Jesus. Well, on a personal note, my husband and I are rejoicing at the moment because just two months ago our first grandchild was born. It was a boy, and guess what? His name is Jesse, hallelujah. God bless our little Jesse. This will be his first Christmas. Isaiah 11 is all about the descendant of Jesse. The chapter begins, a shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots, a branch will bear fruit. What does this mean? Bible commentaries explain that this refers to the amazing recuperative energy of Israel and the Messiah who's called the branch. God has allowed Israel to be leveled to the ground in the past, but Israel and her Messiah can't be destroyed. Jesus was resurrected in the nation-state of Israel, which was a stump, has been resurrected. Isaiah chapter 11 about Jesse's descendant beautifully portrays the Messiah's character and kingdom. Some folks argue against celebrating Christmas reasoning that its origins are pagan. After all, mistletoe, holly, and yule logs are certainly mentioned in the history of pagan worship. But there are also many Christmas traditions associated with the true meaning of the birth of the Savior. For example, bells ring out to remember the joyous news of the Savior's birth. Nativity sets tell the story to children. Candles are lit to remind us that Jesus was born as the light of the world. Star decorations remind us of the star that led the mysterious magi to the newborn king. Gold, frankincense, and myrrh were the gifts of the magi to Jesus. And that's why we give gifts, because he was, after all, God's greatest gift to mankind. But you may ask, what about Christmas trees? Aren't they pagan? Jeremiah. 10.3 is often cited. That verse forbids cutting down trees to carve into wooden idols overlaid with silver and gold. For what? For the purpose of bowing down to worship idols. So it's easy to take that verse out of context to condemn Christmas. But I've never worshiped a Christmas tree, have you? because Christians use the occasion to proclaim Jesus as the reason for the season, the holiday is especially useful among nations that have never heard the gospel. Well, I want to give you a real heartwarming example. A Muslim family that regularly attended our gospel outreaches along with their children, they were the only family in their village to put up a Christmas tree. I wouldn't dare condemn them for doing what some call a pagan practice because they were being very bold in their own way to recognize Jesus in their home. By having a Christmas tree, this Muslim couple was saying to their children that they really did believe in Jesus. The wife told me this personally. She said by having a Christmas tree, it was her family's way of honoring Jesus and identifying themselves as Muslim background believers in Jesus. Christians who choose to ignore Christmas point to the fact that the Bible doesn't give us the date of Messiah's birth. It couldn't have been in the cold depth of winter when Jesus was born because the shepherds were outside at night watching over their flocks. In fact, some Bible scholars believe that Jesus was born in late September during the Jewish Feast of Tabernacles, based upon the timing of the birth of his cousin John the Baptist. Let me explain. John's father Zachariah was a temple priest and in Luke chapter 1 when it was his time to serve in the temple, the angel Gabriel appeared to Zachariah by the temple altar of incense. Gabriel announced to Zechariah that his elderly wife Elizabeth would conceive a son and after the announcement Elizabeth conceived John the Baptist just as the angel had said, in spite of Zechariah's unholy skepticism, which he expressed in the temple no less. But then in the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, Gabriel visited the Virgin Mary in Nazareth to announce that she would miraculously conceive the Messiah Jesus and to strengthen Mary's faith. Gabriel told her that with God nothing is impossible because even her elderly cousin Elizabeth was six months pregnant. Well, unlike Zechariah, Mary believed God and was full of faith. After the Annunciation, she hurried to visit Elizabeth because she had to see for herself the miracle of Elizabeth's pregnancy. And as soon as Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, The baby, John the Baptist, leaped in his mother's womb, and as Mary entered the house, Elizabeth exclaimed in a loud voice, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. What a marvelous confirmation to Mary. She burst out in gratitude to God, prophesying the Magnificat. My soul magnifies the Lord and rejoices in God, my Savior. Mary said, All generations shall call me blessed, for the Mighty One has done great things for me, and holy is his name. Well, during their time together, for about three months, the two women must have enjoyed hours of intimate fellowship. They must have discussed the supernatural pregnancy of Abraham and Sarah. They probably discussed Hannah, who had prayed for a child and whose prayer was the model for Mary's magnificat. They must have discussed Bible prophecies concerning the Messiah. After their fellowship, Mary had to return to Nazareth to face Joseph. But an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and told him not to break off their betrothal because the child that she was carrying was conceived by the Holy Spirit. Well, Luke chapter 2 continues with the fact that in those days the emperor Caesar Augustus had declared a census requiring the citizens to register in their home village. Both Mary and Joseph hailed from Bethlehem, but they were living 90 miles away in Nazareth when it came time to register. They would have traveled for days to reach their hometown in the third trimester of her pregnancy. Along that arduous journey, they might well have stopped in ancient Shiloh, where the Ark had resided for 369 years and where Hannah had prayed fervently to have a child who would become the prophet Samuel. Now, no detail is in the Bible by accident. In Luke 1.5, we're told an important fact that Elizabeth's husband Zechariah belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. The divisions of the priest had been set up by King David. And assuming that Elizabeth conceived her child shortly after Gabriel's announcement to Zechariah, Her sixth month of pregnancy would be approximately in December. This is based upon the timings of the order of Abijah. That means Jesus, the light of the world, would have become incarnate in Mary's womb in December, perhaps during the festival of light, Hanukkah. And He would have been born nine months later in September during the Feast of Tabernacles. And John 1:14, may give us a clue. That verse says, the Word became flesh and tabernacled among us. According to Luke's Gospel, the shepherds were instructed by the angel of the Lord to find the newborn Savior. And the sign they were to look for was a babe wrapped in swaddling cloths, lying in a manger. Now, some scholars say that Jesus' mother Mary may have been given priestly swaddling bands from Elizabeth and her husband Zechariah from the temple. Apparently, when the priests finished serving their term in the holy place, they cut their embroidered priestly garments into strips to be given as a gift to a newborn. Wearing these swaddling cloths would have been a sign that the infant was indeed of the royal line of David. Elizabeth, who was a prophetess, knew in her heart that Mary was the mother of the prophesied Emmanuel. Elizabeth knew that Mary's son was fully deserving to wear the priestly swaddling cloths. Both Mary and Joseph were of the lineage of King David and Jesus was kin to the Aaronic priestly family as well. While preparing for the census trip with Joseph to Bethlehem, Mary would have packed these distinguishing bands to swaddled her newborn son. Many cultures still practice swaddling today. Cloths are used to wrap an infant tightly, and this helps the baby transition from the womb's snug environment to the outside world. Swaddling bands are still used today. In fact, when her son Daniel was born in Jerusalem, the hospital wrapped him up like a little mummy. When they brought him to me, I was so surprised to see that nearly 2,000 years later, the Israelis were still swaddling babies just like in the Bible. It was a precious sight. Swaddling is proven to help infants sleep better, to prevent them from scratching themselves and to reduce the risk of sudden infant death syndrome. The New Testament passage that refers to swaddling cloths is Luke 2.7, which records that Mary gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. And in Luke 2.12, the angel told the shepherds that swaddling cloths would be part of the sign to find the Messiah. At this point, it's important to mention a Jewish Christian Bible scholar who lived in the 19th century. Alfred Edersheim. He wrote a book called The Life and Times of Jesus the Messiah. Edersheim was born in Vienna of Jewish parents of culture and wealth. English was spoken in their home and Edersheim became fluent at an early age. He was also educated at a Hebrew school in the Talmud and Torah and eventually ended up teaching at Oxford. According to Edersheim, Sacrificial lambs were raised in the hills around Bethlehem only about 4 miles as the crow flies from Jerusalem's temple. Edersheim explained that a watchtower was built in the vicinity of Bethlehem to protect temple flocks. Lambs that were destined to become temple sacrifices were born in a birthing room below the tower of the flock, and in Hebrew the name of this tower was Migdal Eder. Mishnah sources also indicate that animals in the fields within a certain distance from Migdal Eder were used as sacrificial animals in the Jerusalem temple. During lambing season, specially trained shepherds would make judgments about which lambs qualified to be sacrificed. You see, according to strict Torah specifications, lambs that qualified had to be born without spot or blemish. And so the perfect lambs were wrapped with swaddling cloths to protect them from harming themselves. After all, little lambs are frisky creatures. Bible scholars point to a biblical prophecy indicating that the Messiah would be revealed from the Tower of the Flock, from Migdal-Eder, which is connected with the town of Bethlehem, just southeast of Jerusalem. According to Micah 4.8, it says, and thou, O tower of Eder, fort of the daughter of Zion. The former dominion will be restored to you. Kingship will come to the daughter of Jerusalem. Furthermore, concerning the Messiah, Micah 5.4 carries on with the shepherd's theme. That verse says, And he shall stand and feed his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And he shall be great unto the ends of the earth. The meaning of this prophecy is that King Messiah will be the Good Shepherd, guiding and defending His flock, and in fact Jesus referred to Himself as the Good Shepherd. I believe this is also a prophecy of the millennial rule of the Messiah, when the children of Israel finally will dwell in peace in their own land. There are many theories about St. Luke's mention of the swaddling cloths, a practice that showed the tender care of Jesus' mother. Luke 2.12 tells us that the angels appeared to the shepherds at night and that the sign to identify the baby as the Messiah was that he would be wrapped in baby cloths like the sacrificial lambs were wrapped. But what about the other sign that they would find the baby in a manger, in an animal trough? That would be an incredible sign to the shepherds. A baby wrapped in royal priestly bands but sleeping in an animal trough? amongst God's creatures in a stable, similar to a sukkah, a simple shelter that Jews erect during the Feast of Tabernacles. There's so much to ponder in the narrative of Jesus' birth. And that's why I like the way Christmas is translated in modern Hebrew. Christmas is called the holiday of the birth in Hebrew. Isn't that wonderful? And for sure, the Lord's birth was the birth of all births. Because of the crowds that had come to Bethlehem, there was no room at the inn for Mary and Joseph. While tradition says that the inn was something like a hotel, we don't really know for sure. The guest house most likely had a lower floor, which served as a nighttime shelter for animals. This we do know from both the Hebrew Bible and the New Testament. The temple shepherds must look for a stable and a manger near the Tower of Eder. And why wasn't Jesus born in a palace fit for a king, God's only Son? Why would a food trough be His lowly bed instead? It's because God's Son made His appearance on earth in the most humble of circumstances in order to be approachable and accessible to everybody. No palace gates, no palace guards barred the way to Him. Jesus, the Bread of Life, was born in Bethlehem, which means house of bread, and the bread of life slept in a feeding trough. The shepherd's fields where the Shekinah glory of God appeared is in a suburb of Bethlehem called today Beit Sahor, which means house of the watchers. A chapel in Beit Sahor was designed to resemble a shepherd's tent. And today, Beit Sahor is a Christian village and we want to encourage all to pray for the Christian community. And one way we can support the Christian community is by making a pilgrimage to visit the birthplace of Jesus. In fact, we use the Christmas celebrations as an opportunity to share the Gospel. Many times we've held festive meals in Bethlehem and Beit Sahur to preach the Gospel, to pray for the sick, and to strengthen the diminishing Christian community. The town once had a Christian majority, but Israel ceded control of Bethlehem to the Palestinian Authority, and today, sadly, only about a fifth of the population is Christian, predominantly of the Catholic and Orthodox faith. This year, we'll be taking a team to hold an outreach during the Orthodox Christmas celebrations at a Bethlehem orphanage. The Bible doesn't mandate that We should worship or celebrate on any specific day the birth of Jesus, but because the wise men and the shepherds worship Jesus at his birth, there's nothing to stop us celebrating and worshiping him. Let's marvel at how God orchestrated an extraordinary number of circumstances to fulfill Bible prophecy at the birth of Jesus. The Roman emperor would declare a census requiring Mary and Joseph to travel to Bethlehem thus making sure that the Messiah was born in the city of David. The shepherds cared for a flock of animals that would be used as sacrifices in the temple. This foreshadowed that the baby wrapped in swaddling cloths would become the ultimate sacrifice for sin and would be wrapped in a burial shroud. But he would be resurrected. The birth of Messiah would be declared by a great company of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. In the manger, a small baby wrapped in priestly, swaddling cloths, was destined to become our high priest, while the entire night sky was lit up by angelic beings. The phrase heavenly host has a specific meaning implying an angelic army. Celebrating that God has sent His Son into the world to rescue us from the bondage of sin. And the truth is, the Christian faith is likened to an army at war with Satan and evil. In the book of Revelation, John describes how that same heavenly host of angels will once again declare the good news that was accomplished by the cross of Jesus. Over towards the end of the book, in Revelation chapter 19 and verse 6, it takes us to the culmination of world history When Satan is destroyed, and John the Revelator declares, I heard a great multitude, like the roar of rushing waters, and loud peals of thunder, shouting, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God Almighty reigns. And let us rejoice and be glad and give Him glory. For the wedding of the Lamb has come, and His bride has made herself ready. That's what the birth of Jesus is all about. He came to replace those Bethlehem lambs as the only and ultimate sacrifice acceptable to God. When he became a man, Jesus would be crucified to take upon himself the sin and suffering of the world as the Lamb of God. Today, whether or not you choose to celebrate the Christmas holiday, what's really important is that you accept the claims of the Lord Jesus upon your heart as Savior and Lord. I urge you to repent of your sins, believe on Jesus, and call upon His name as I have done. And then the Bible promises that you shall be saved. Amen. Well, now I'd like to invite you to stay in contact on social media or at our website at exploits.tv where you can sign up to receive our free Color Magazine, Exploits. A reminder also that our Jerusalem Channel app is available free to download from your app store. And so until next time, always contending for the faith and praying earnestly for the peace of Jerusalem, I'm Christine Darn, Maranatha, Shalom, and Happy Christmas.